interesting topics to kick off your weekend. Looking at the news with an eye of faith. This is Friendly Fire with Stu Kearns on the Voice of Lincoln, 1499.3 KLIN. Good Saturday morning. It's a Friendly Fire Saturday. Stu Kearns, your host. Glad to have you along. And uh, it's uh, Husker baseball season. Uh, we've got games this weekend. And, hey, it's only two weeks until home games. And so I'll see you there. Look for me in Section 103. Uh, it's also the time of year where we have uh, a whole slate of local programming here. Uh, so uh, just uh, keep it right there on 1400 or 99.3. And you get the Kayla Ann Husker Hour, the best of uh, LNK Today with Jack and Friends. Uh, one shot, one life, uh, grow Lincoln, and, uh, and of course, uh, a lot of basketball uh, still to be played this season. Uh, something exciting happened this week, and there's a lot of crazy stuff in the news. We'll talk about some of it. But one of those exciting things was that a, uh, one of our local authors had his second book published on the 22nd. And I, uh, I wrangled him by the arm and said, Hey, let's talk about, uh, this new book. And so, uh, it's, it's glad, to, it's good to have, uh, Jake Meter here in studio. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Yeah. What's it, uh, this is the second book. Uh, rem- remind us of when the first book was published. When was the first book published? Um, June of 2020. I, no, June of 2019, because it was pre, pre pandemic. Gotcha. So, yep. Yeah. Gotcha. Uh, these are, um, you know, I mean, a lot of people self publish books and they do different things like this. And, mm-hmm. and, and again, I'm, I, I appreciate all that. But, uh, this is InterVarsity Press, mm-hmm. which yeah. is, which is one of the major, uh, Christian publishers. So it's, uh, so a lot of people might, well, okay, whatever. You published a book. This <laughs> is, there aren't, uh, there aren't a lot of people who publish books with IVP. It's kind of a big deal. Yeah, it's been fun to work with them. I've enjoyed it. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I can brag on you, but uh, but it is. It's easy to kind of let these things kind of slide by. Now, what was just as a refresher? So what we're going to do today, by the way, we'll kind of be, give a little refresher on what the last book was about, and then we'll talk about some of the themes of this book. Mm-hmm. And and if we have some time, we might talk about. There's crazy stuff happening in the news this week. Um, you know, I just, uh, would say pray for the people of Ukraine. Uh, it, it seems like it's going from bad to worse. And, uh, and so there's, there's a lot of things we can talk about, but, um, it isn't that often where a local author, uh, gets published and, uh, gets, uh, gets a forward, uh, your first book, uh, by Tim Keller, who's, who's a a pretty well-known Christian author. Yeah. Um, Tim's been extremely generous and kind to Miro and to me for a number of years. So I'm just grateful. Yes. <laughs> remind us what Miro is. Uh, Mere Orthodoxy. It's the magazine that I edit and publish. Um, Christian Ideas magazine. Um, kind of trying to play in the same ballpark as like First Things or The Atlantic, that kind of level of coverage. Yeah, yeah. So uh, you get this idea. You uh, begin putting the book together. Uh, you actually meet up with Tim Keller to get him to write the forward and kind of get some input for the book. Uh, that's, whatever, three-ish, four-ish mm-hmm. years ago? Yeah. And uh, and then the book is published. And then uh, what were some of the themes of that first book? So the first book is called In Search of the Common Good. And it was my attempt to try and shift a lot of public conversations about the good life, um, purpose and meaning in human life away from a really hardline individualism and try to drag that back toward more communal sensibilities, more communitarian kind of um, outlook on things. 
And so we talked about work, marriage, rest, um, as they relate to our life together in churches, neighborhoods, cities, and so on. Yes, yes. So uh, the, the, the whole idea of the common good, uh, a year ago I had um, an author on who, who wrote a book about uh, the different foundings of America. And one of those things that he, one of his uh, theses of, of the of the book was that that America didn't have a single founding; it had multiple foundings, mm-hmm. and that in particular, uh, the what he calls Yankeedom is is really anchored in this idea of the common good that goes all the way back to the Puritans. Mm-hmm. And that's a that's a thread that kind of goes across uh, much of of Eastern and Northern America, whereas the Midwest tends to be more of an of a rugged individualist kind mm-hmm. of uh, mindset. Um, uh, why is it, I, I think sometimes, especially from the Midwest, we're uncomfortable talking about the common good uh, or we, or we we're skeptical about that because we're so wired to be individualist. Yeah. I think part of what happens, especially in the like great plains part of the Midwest, because if you get up into the great lakes region, it's a, very different kind of ball game. You can even see that reflected in like the history of the universities in the like upper part of the Big Ten versus further south, like the old Big Eight in Nebraska. And um, I think one of the things that is really a big deal for the Great Plains region is that basically everybody out here, there's not really old money in like there's a very small amount of old money in Nebraska, like compared to my wife's from Alabama, totally different ball game down there um out here you're either the descendant of homesteaders or an immigrant yourself um and so like for my family i had no family over here until 1880 and basically all of them except for a couple were homesteaders out in nebraska or iowa it was a hard life and you depended on yourself because you had to um Like my um, great grandfather and great grandmother were tenant farmers in Oakland, Nebraska. And so Oakland's this town of a thousand people. There's not a lot of community around in the way that there would have been, um, certainly out east or even up more in the Great Lakes region. And so they had to take care of themselves because there just wasn't a lot around you. Although what's interesting is that it was still a very kind of family centered individualism, (laughs) if you can describe it that Mm -hmm. way. Um, cause like my grandfather and granduncle had tons of stories growing up on the farm. Um, well actually, um, my granduncle was Rudy Fredstrom who Fredstrom elementary is named for. And so mm-hmm. he has an autobiography that he wrote where he just talks about life on the farm growing up. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you can read about all of the chores that these boys had and the, the household would not have functioned without them. Yeah. So even there, it's not as individualistic as I think we maybe remember it as with the distance of 70, 80, 90 years. Yeah. And it is interesting too, um, the ability to rally around one another in, in the rural mm-hmm. uh, life. Uh, you know, the farmer who is sick uh, and, and, and can't bring in the crops, mm-hmm. you know, you, you get neighbors who pitch in and make those things happen. Right. So there's, a, there's this weird combination of, of helpfulness to each other. And yet mm-hmm. this kind of, I don't want to ask for help. But I'll, but if people give it, I might be willing to receive it. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but so, so there is this thread though of uh, of a more communal way of thinking about things, and mm-hmm. and it's funny how with COVID, 
this has really exposed these fault lines mm-hmm. of uh, of communities that are just at their core wired more around personal freedom and individual liberty mm-hmm. versus versus hey well, we need to rally together we need to come together mm-hmm. and we and and is is that just a cultural thing a political thing is it an all above the above thing so it's actually I, I've been listening to a pastor and podcaster he's from Australia named Mark Sayers lately and I, I keep listening to him and thinking I wish I had been listening to him when I was writing the first two books it would have been helpful um, so what Sayers talks about in this podcast I just listened to is he says that kind of the defining theology or life philosophy whatever you want to call it of most of the past 30 years certainly and even a little ways further back than that um, is what he calls the secular Sabbath and so the idea of Sabbath, if you think about it in Scripture, is that God has subdued the chaos and now he is resting. Or if you look, think about like Solomon's reign in the Bible as a time of Sabbath, the enemies have been subdued and now we rest. And so the kind of animating belief for a lot of people has been chaos has been subdued, the enemies are defeated, history is over, and now we rest. And so life is about accumulating good feelings and experiences that give you good feelings. And that's kind of the world we've been living in for the past several decades. And there's a high degree of predictability. I know I'm going to have this job in a year. I know I'm going to have this income level. I know I'm going to go on this vacation. I know this event, the Olympics, are going to happen. Um, And what has been happening repeatedly in kind of growing harder to ignore ways, I think, over the last decade or so, is that that predictability is getting disrupted. Mm. So for someone my age, I graduated in 2010. So I remember being in college in 2006 and having a guy I worked with um, in IT at the university tell me, oh yeah, if you know Adobe Flash, you'll be making 60 grand a year straight out of college. Well, then Flash got torpedoed by Apple and then the economy tanked. And my first year after I graduated, my only steady job was part-time at a liquor store. So the predictability just disappeared. Mm. And then you think about our politics. um, Predictability disappears when Brexit happens. Predictability disappears when for a while in 16, it looked like our our general was going to be Bernie versus Trump, Mm. which would have been unimaginable in the 90s. And yet here we were. Um, And then COVID, ultimate predictability disruptor um, (laughs) for two years. Yes. And so there's been all of these little attacks on the secular Sabbath mentality. Mm. And so people are now having to live with less predictability, uh, with a greater sense of their own fragility. Mm. Um, And so if you think about it, like none of us actually can live entirely on our own. Like even the self-reliant homesteader, um, they were getting fabric from somewhere to make their clothes that they probably hadn't grown themselves. But particularly in cities as we live today, I'm eating food I didn't grow every day. I'm wearing clothes I didn't make every day. I'm living in a house I didn't build. Um, but what the secular Sabbath age kind of did is it made it easier to obscure those dependencies that mm-hmm. we all have. And those ways that we can't sustain our own life in the world. And so I think what's happening now and has been happening in like a growing way over the last decade or so is that that whole world is kind of winding down. I think Mm. Um, I I think we now live in the post post Cold War age. 
And so all of that predictability of the past 30 years and the routine and the certainty and the sense that chaos is defeated, enemies are defeated, now we rest, kind of over, I think. And yes. so there's this sense of, well, now what? Ah, uh, let's, let's take a little break and then we're going to come back. Let's pick up on that theme and then also, uh, dig into some of the, let's, we'll, we'll start digging into the, the new book and <laughs> then some good. of the themes coming to that. It's a friendly fire Saturday. Stu Kern's here talking, uh, with Jake Meter and who has, uh, written a new book. What are Christians for? Life together at the end of the world. And, uh, it's, uh, uh Jake's a, as you can hear, a very thoughtful guy. And, uh, uh, I'm excited to talk, talk about the book. You're listening to the voice of Lincoln, 1499.3. K-L-I-N. Keeping the topics lively and the conversation civil, this is Friendly Fire with Stu Kurds on The Voice of Lincoln, 1499.3 K-L-I-N. We are back. It's Friendly Fire Saturday talking with Jake Meter. Uh, Jake's uh, the author of a now a second book. Uh, the first one has to do with the common good. We were exploring those themes. And then the second one, uh, kind of uh, building on a lot of those themes mm-hmm. in, a, in, a, in some practical ways. Uh, what was the, uh, what were the seeds of this second book? What, when you started thinking about it, uh, what were, what were some of the thoughts that were bouncing around in your mind? Oh man, that could be a long conversation. Um, I missed several deadlines with this book. So the process of writing this book was longer than the first one, um, because of the missed deadlines and the sense of always feeling like I needed to read one more thing before I was ready to sit down and write. Mm -hmm. Um, but so one of the things that happened with the first book is I had this conversation with several people and was also feeling this tension myself a little bit. Like, so you can try to build a really thriving home, family life, or life with roommates if you're um, single. You can try to approach your work as something to give as a gift of love to your neighbor rather than just a way to make money. You can try to have good practices of rest and Sabbath, um, but there's only so far you can get if it's just you wanting to do that. Like if our my family's life changed in ways where like we suddenly had way more money and more leisure time and we wanted to have people over for dinner five nights a week, just really embrace a more hospitable way of living. Uh, we have to have people who want to come over and who have the time and space themselves to do that. Um, And so the question then becomes, well, what about when that's not the world you're living in? Like, how do you move beyond? These are some good individual practices to try and be more open to community. um, And that will help your life become a little bit healthier and focus out toward the world rather than in on yourself. Mm. Um, but at some point, like there has to be a translation beyond your family, your household, your immediate circles. And what happens when you can't make that move? So the idea of the second book started as basically um, what what is a Christian society? Is such a thing desirable? Um, how would a Christian society kind of meet with the society we currently have? What continuity would there be what discontinuity would there be um and so it kind of built out from that and then morphed in some ways that surprised me as i was writing it yes uh this one um this one i would say uh it uh it is a little bit more challenging read than the first one now i don't know if that was 
just the way it worked out or but uh but i now don't get me wrong i i really enjoyed it i really enjoyed it but i do feel like there that people need to have a little bit of a disclaimer and realize that you're gonna have to put your thinking cap on (laughs) and uh and so the the other one was probably a little little bit more at a at a uh what what am i trying to say at a uh i mean the at the publishing lingo would be a trade level book is okay. what these are versus like an academic press book. Gotcha. So this is some somewhere and this is somewhere in that this is leaning more toward the it's, academic. Yeah, side. it's living in between trade and academic more yeah. than the first one was. Yeah, yeah. That's but it's a really really important uh, conversation and uh, that the mm-hmm. book gets into in a, in a variety of ways. Uh, one of the things that uh, early in the book I talk about a thick view of creation. And uh, what what do you mean when you when you think about a thick view of creation mm-hmm. and and the goodness of of uh, of where we live? So, I think something that happens a lot for people is, especially maybe now as we have so much uncertainty around us, um, we feel ourselves kind of in a transition moment um, historically, culturally. Um, so you ask yourself, and I'm I'm borrowing this from a theologian named Willie Jennings, who I found very helpful as I was writing, you find yourself in this kind of uncertain moment, uncertain place, and you ask yourself, who am I in this new place that I have not encountered before, that I don't know? Um, And I think the kind of characteristic American modern move is that we answer that question mostly by turning inward. And we kind of have this idea of this kind of inner authentic self that needs to be allowed out, needs to be allowed to express itself, to kind of present itself to the world. And so we turn inward and we think about what are my desires, what are my pains, what are my ambitions, and how do I manifest those in the world? Um, And the effect of this, unfortunately, is that it has a way of reducing the people around you and the landscape around you and the institutions around you, all of these different things, they kind of get reduced to bit players in your life story. Mm. Um, They get reduced to just mere matter and you kind of act on them. And what I want to see us try to do instead is instead of looking inward when we face that extremely relatable question of who are we in this new place, instead of looking inward, look outward and let your neighbors help you answer that question. Let the needs of your local place help you answer that question. Um, Let your church community help you answer that question. Don't just try to answer that on your own. Just don't don't try to just kind of invent your own self through Mm -hmm. choices and experiences and feelings and decisions, but actually try to let the people around you speak into your life and shape your sense of who you are, um, what your work ought to be, how you... Um, can best love your neighbor um, wherever God has put you. And so you have this sense that the world outside of you has, um, the phrase Jennings uses is ontological density. Um, The idea is that it has some kind of internal quality that you need to respect. And so you don't get to just ignore it or get to just say, "Eh, it doesn't matter, it's just whatever I want it to be. Now, what's interesting is that when you start applying this to specific issues, it really doesn't map onto our politics very well. Because if I tell somebody, if I tell a businessman, no, you can't just blow the top off of that mountain to get energy to sell to people. That's a violation of the integrity of this landscape. 
conservatives are not going to be very happy with me and people more to the left are probably going to be like, yeah, right on. But then by the same token, if you turn around and say, no, in your sexual life, you don't just get to kind of define whatever is right for you. There's this external world that your sexual life needs to be ordered to in some way. Some, not all, sadly, but some conservatives will be like, yeah, right on. And then the people to my left are generally going to get really up in arms. Um, and so it's a really striking thing. But I think because this belief in the secular Sabbath, this belief in a really um, hardline commitment to this kind of inner self and ambition, um, that's kind of a thing that unites most people in the U.S., I think. Um, across our politics. And so if you try to reject that and turn toward reality, turn toward nature and say, no, there's something here that we're obliged to in some way, um, no one's very happy with you. And yet I think that's the path toward greater connection with our neighbors, toward a thicker sense of place and commitment to wherever we're living, toward yeah. a richer knowledge um, and sense of belonging, which is, I think, what a lot of people want is the sense of belonging and fitting somewhere. Yeah, yeah. And yet because of our underlying beliefs and commitments, we live in ways that make that very difficult to obtain. Yeah. I want to pick up on that thought. We're going to take another break, but that, uh, that sense of place is a, is a dominant theme in the book. And uh, so I want to explore that a little bit more as well. Talking with Jake meter and uh, glad to have you along. You're listening to friendly fire on the voice of Lincoln, 1499.3 KLIN. Interesting topics to kick off your weekend. Looking at the news with an eye of faith. Friendly Fire with Stu Kearns. 1499.3 KLIN. We are back. Uh, we're talking with uh, Jake Meter here, author of uh, What Christians Are For. Uh, oh, no, excuse me. <laughs> it's a question. <laughs> what are Christians for? It's a question. And then, uh, by the way, a life together at the end of the world. The end of the world always catches people's attention. <laughs> what, uh, uh, what did you mean by that in the title? Um, kind of what we already talked about, this sense that uh, the world, there's a line in, um, I think it's in Return of the King with Gandalf. Um, he's in, arriving in Gondor and he tells one of the guards at the gates, for better or worse, the Gondor you've known is over. We don't know what's coming next, but it won't be what we've experienced. And I think that's where we are right now. We're kind yeah. of in this, Sayers calls it a gray zone, mm. um, where things feel very foggy and very uncertain, and it feels like there's a ton of possibilities yeah. of what could come next, but no one really knows what it will be. Yeah. Um, and so this world that we've known, I mean, I've known basically my whole life, like I actually don't remember the Berlin Wall coming down, because mm. I was born in December of 87. So I was alive when it happened, but I don't remember it. Um, so the world I've known my whole life has been this kind of end of history thing, and that seems to be winding down. So there's this mm. sense of uncertainty and what next. Yeah, yeah. The sense of, uh, talking about the sense of place and rootedness, uh, I was, we were emailing about this and I, um, it is such a common thing and I've, I've especially noticed it in people who, uh, all the explosion of interest in 23andMe and, uh, and uh, Ancestry.com and, and my roots and my genealogy and, and people have this deep attachment to I want to know who I am. I want to know where I came from and those kinds of questions. Uh, and yet we still are very mobile, very individualistic, very unrooted. 
is do those are those things kind of feeding off one of the one off the other? Uh, probably. I, I do think it's hard to put down roots in a time of economic uncertainty. Um, unless you get very, very serious about in some way acquiring productive property so that you can just support yourself. Mm -hmm. But even that can be hard. I mean, just look at land prices. <laughs> um, so it's always a hard thing. Like, I don't want to, I don't want to ever make people feel like I'm kind of like wagging my finger at them. Like, why have you not put down roots yet? Um, cause that's a really hard thing. We've made it hard to do in mm -hmm. this country through the choices that we've made. And yet, yeah, I think it's interesting that we have this surge in interest in heredity and where we come from. Um, I mean, I, I'm very fortunate um, that my parents talked often about their parents and grandparents. And so I have tons of stories about family members I never knew. I mean, mm -hmm. I have stories about my great grandfather who died over 40 years before I was born mm -hmm. um, that I know about him. And I find resemblances between myself and him. And there's, so I actually have a picture of him in my study on a bookshelf. He's this very kind of austere looking Swedish Lutheran from Northeast Nebraska. And yet when I hear stories about him, I'm like, I resemble some of these things. And yeah. I think there's something reassuring about that. There, when, when you live, um, well, both when you live in a time of uncertainty and when you live with this idea that I'm responsible to narrate my own identity yeah. and I have to create my identity. Like that's the flip side to turning inward is mm. you don't have help defining your identity, which mm. is a really heavy burden to carry. I read a newspaper column this one time who said that's a really hard homework assignment and most of us aren't up for it. Yeah. Um, so when you have that, both the uncertainty and this really crippling sense of responsibility, um, to be able to find your people in the past and feel a sense of connection to them, a literal connection in your body, in your blood, um, is really significant for people, I think. Yeah, yeah. I remember, you know, that started back in the 70s to some degree. Um, maybe it was the sexual revolution and, and different things happening culturally, but but I was of the one of the first generations where they said you can be anything you want to be, <laughs> and and as you know, it was meant to be like a, a wonderful liberating statement. Mm -hmm. But it but I began to want to know. But what do you think I'm good at, <laughs> and how do you think I fit into this mm -hmm. thing? And uh, and there weren't a lot of people who wanted to say it was it was it 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 was the beginning of feeling that that was not a gift, but a burden. And I think mm -hmm. it's only gotten worse over the course of my lifetime. Yeah, I think so. Um, one of the things I try to say early in the book is that living with certain kinds of indebtedness is actually good um, because it establishes relationships wherein we can receive care and wherein we can give care. And so the example I use is I um, New Year's Eve senior year of college, I went to a party for a little while and I was about to graduate. I was about to move away. I wanted to kind of get out into the country. So I drove out and I was at like West 200th and Denton, I think, or something like that. Mm -hmm. Got out of my car, walked around a little bit. It's like 1 a.m. below zero. I'm bundled up in tons of stuff. And then I go to get back in my car and I pulled so far onto the side of the road that I couldn't get back on the road. And so I kind of have this momentary panic. I'm like, I'm way out there and I don't know what I'm supposed to do. And I try calling my roommates, but they're at New Year's parties. So nobody's answering. And so finally I call my parents 
Um, and you know, and you like you call your parents late at night, and their voice gets real sharp real fast when they hear you, and they realize what time it is and who's calling. Yeah. Like, I have that, and my mom gets my dad on the phone, and I tell him what happened, and he comes out and gets me, and he helps push me out of the snow, and we drive back into town, mm. um, and we pulled over at this gas station, and I thanked him for coming out to get me, probably like the eleventh time I had said thank you, and the time he'd been out there, and the response he had is he said, eh. I had a Jeep when I was your age. You should have seen the ways I got it stuck. My dad always came and got me. And I mean, my dad, like, he had a Jeep, and his, like, income source in high school was he trapped along the Platte River outside Omaha. So I believe that he got the Jeep stuck in really bad ways. <laughs> yeah. um, and he said his dad always came and got him. So here he was. Oh, um, man. And so, it, I mean, it changes for me now. Like, I have three sons and so it changes the way i think about what i owe to those three boys and to my daughter mm -hmm. um because i'm aware of what i was given mm -hmm. and so those kind of generational forms of debt um they have a way of helping you know what you should do and who you are and what goodness is and so mm -hmm. I, I think when we try to obscure or eliminate those forms of debt and I mean, you can find people like the nation had an editorial a year or two ago about abolishing the family. Like mm. when you can find that kind of, I actually think it's a really sad thing because when I think about family, I think about it as the place where we learn to give and receive care. Um, that certainly has been my experience of it. And it's helped me know what I owe to my kids. Mm -hmm. And so uh, certain forms of debt are a good thing. Yeah, yeah. It was interesting. I had a chance to help my mom. She had a medical issue uh, this week. And, uh, and you know, of course, she's very thankful and everything. And I just looked at her. I said, Mom, how many times have you done this for me? You know, it's <laughs> right. like this is, right. you know, I think, I'm, I think I'm still on the wrong side of the ledger on this one, you know. Right. And so, uh, so those, yeah, those kinds of things can play a really positive role. Right. Uh, we're going to take one more break, then we'll come back and we'll uh, finish our conversation. I want to dig a little bit more into the book, and we have to do a shameless plug. <laughs> so we'll do that here in just a minute. It's a Friendly Fire Saturday, talking with uh, author Jake Meter. And uh, this is all happening on Friendly Fire, 1400 and 99.3 KLIN. Bringing you local voices to break down the news of the week. Friendly Fire with Stu Kurds on the voice of Lincoln, 1499.3 KLIN. Welcome back. Uh, talking today with author Jake Meter. And uh, Jake, it is that time of the program where we always do a shameless plug. So uh, I, you can plug anything you want to, but I, I think you might want to plug the book. Yes. So you can buy the book, What Are Christians For? Life Together at the End of the World, um, on bookshop.org, on Amazon. Um, I'm not sure. It's only out this week, so I'm not sure about local booksellers yet. Um, there's also a really wonderful bookstore in Pennsylvania called Hearts and Minds Books um, that will sell it to you as well. So if you want to get in touch with them, you can. Um, and then otherwise, I have a magazine I edit called Mere Orthodoxy. You can find us online and subscribe that way. Um, the second issue is with designers now. So if you subscribe now, you wouldn't get that. Although if you're here in town, you could get one from me, I guess. Um, but the third issue is coming together and will be going out soon. Yes, yes. Uh, I'll uh, give a hearty uh, plug to that. And uh, we don't know. We haven't set a date yet, but we're going to do a book signing at Zion. And so we'll have yeah. another we we'll have a little wine and cheese, a little uh, a little <laughs> a book summary there, and and, and then uh, Jake will have a chance to sign some books. So, 
I'll make sure that I shamelessly plug that when it is on the nearer horizon. Um, the uh, again, uh, getting back to some of the themes of the book, um, this uh, this idea of having a more robust view of our interaction and our of place and nature and so forth. Um, you know, somebody somebody's going to read that and say, "Well, Jake's just a tree hugger." And, and so that's a, which my wife is a tree hugger. I've got pictures to prove it. I, I have my mom has a picture in her home of her hugging a tree. So. Yeah, there you go. That's it. There, um, there is one of the things that comes through in the book is, um, uh, again, one of the dominant themes was this idea of how we think about the world as is it a resource for us to just use. Mm-hmm. Or is it actually a, a part of God's creation, a gift that we that we don't mm-hmm. just it isn't it isn't just a consumer product, mm-hmm. but it's it's actually something to form a relationship with mm-hmm. and a proper relationship. Can you explain those differences? Yeah, um, we can't live in the world without blood and without breaking things, um, without having to cut down trees, for instance. And so I'm not trying to advocate some kind of like neo-pagan thing where we live at like one with like, no, (laughs) what I'm talking about is um, relating to the world in ways that recognize our dependence upon it um, and that see us also as owing something to people that come after us. And so Mm -hmm. you can't think about your relationship to the world in purely short term ways. Mm. because someday you'll be gone and someone will come after you and they will be living in the world that you've left them. Um, and I worry about that a lot for my kids and their kids. Um, what kind of world will they live in? Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing, though, is that when you actually try to interact with the creation in ways that show attentiveness, intelligence, sensitivity to it, um, it's just delightful. Um, and that can look like a lot of things like over the pandemic, I got into making cocktails at home and just learning about how ingredients play together and work together and how your body experiences tastes and smells is actually a lot of fun. (laughs) And you can play with like one ingredient in a drink or one ingredient in a dish and completely change it or even just change the way you prepare it. If you make the same curry twice and you bloom the spices in oil once and you don't the other time, it will be completely different. Um, and that's a really enjoyable thing. Or I think about my, my dad before his brain injury, he was a big hunter. Um, and he was one of the most conscientious hunters you will ever meet. And so he wouldn't like, if he had a shot at a really big buck, but it wasn't a good shot, he didn't take it because he didn't want that buck to suffer And he also didn't want to have to chase it for a really long time because that's just cold and unpleasant and not what you want to be doing when you're hunting. And so he would pass on the shot. But then when he would get a good shot and he would take the deer, I mean, the farmers whose land he was hunting on wanted him to get some of the deer off their land for them for the sake of their crops. And he would then get to bring the meat to a butcher and we would get to have like my wife and I, our, our first Thanksgiving, when we were just dating, we ate a venison loin that my dad got um, mm. when he was hunting. And so when you can engage with the world in ways that are deferential to it and that seek to treat it with respect, um, 
I think you also just have a, you have a healthier relationship to the world and it's more pleasurable um, because you're doing something with skill and intelligence rather mm-hmm. than just kind of bumbling about, yeah. which I think is how a lot of us like, I mean, I've even found this being a homeowner. Like I've owned a house for five years now and there are things I can do now that I couldn't do when we bought the house. And they actually, I, I would never would have imagined myself enjoying home repair stuff. Yeah. And yet when I actually know what I'm doing and I understand why I need to do it this way, it's a more enjoyable experience because you mm-hmm. feel like you're fixing something that wasn't right and you're able to make this thing better and it's in front of you and you can see it yeah. and you know you did that. And there's something really life-giving about that. So mm-hmm. I, I think, I don't know, like I sometimes will talk to people about how we relate to the world and people get very nervous about it and and in some senses, I guess I can understand it, but I also just think about my own experience and I'm like learning to interact with the world in more skillful and attentive ways has not been a burden for me. It's been pleasurable. Yeah. Yeah. Did you see that little documentary? I think it was called the biggest little farm. I haven't was, seen that one. No. Uh, that's uh, it came out just a few years ago, but basically it's about a, a couple who uh, bought some land out in California and it was very, it had been, had it been a farm and it, or a, an orchard, and it had fallen into uh, what looked like, mm-hmm. you know, it just into devastation and 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 and, uh, and drought, and it just couldn't be preserved. They decided to reconstruct uh, a farm mm-hmm. there, and so they go from the very bottom up to figure out the how everything intersects. And so stage by stage, you're, you're seeing them f- solve a problem naturally. Mm-hmm. And then, wait, that created a new problem. And so they, they're solving <laughs> yes. that. And then, but by the end of the movie, you see mm-hmm. it's like, okay, wow, they created a paradise where it looked like it was doomed to be lost. You tell mm-hmm. a story like that in the book uh, about the, is it the, Bruder, uh, the Bruderhof? The Bruderhof? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So the Bruderhof is a community of radical Anabaptists um, who live and share all things like they, have a common purse so they don't have their own money. They share the fruit of their work together and they have a community that's been in Australia for about 20 years. And when they moved to this land, it was brown and there was very little water in the ground and they tried to farm it and it just failed because the land couldn't sustain what they were trying to do. And so then they kind of reset and they said, okay, can we make the land healthier? And they realized that what had happened is these Europeans had come to Australia and they tried to farm Australian land the way they farmed Europe. And Australian land is extremely different um, because Australia does not get as much rain as the part of Europe that like the UK where all these people were from did. Mm. And so in Australia, ag is all about water retention. Mm. And so the Bruderhof started doing all of the things that the aboriginal people in Australia had been doing for time untold to nurture the land and you look at the aerial shots of their community today and it's this pocket of green surrounded by brown it's the most jarring thing to look at and it's Mm. i mean in one sense you say it's taken 20 years but in one sense you look at the land and you look at the transformation you're like they did that in 20 years like it's a very hopeful thing um the the story is published in plow it's called beating the big dry Mm. and so they talk to the guy who leads the farm work at the Danthonia Bruderhof, and he just talks about what they did and why. Um, and there's a lot of before and after pictures, and it's mm-hmm. so in, like if you're at all concerned about climate change, just see the stuff they're doing is so encouraging. 
Wow, so, that that's awesome. Just yeah. got just about a minute and a half left. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, uh, back to the, wrapping up around the book. Mm-hmm. Um, is there a third book? Is there because <laughs> the, the one book leads to some more ideas, and then the other ideas lead to I this idea. To, I'm doing Miro full time right now. Mm-hmm. We need our financials to improve if I'm mm-hmm. going to keep doing it full time, and so I'm trying to focus mm-hmm. on growing yep, yep. that institution. Um, and hopefully in the future I can get to do more, but if there were um, seeds for a third, <laughs> for, a, for a trilogy here, what, what, um, would, what might it, one of those seeds be? So the thing I could write that would not be as research intensive is I'm very concerned about de-churching and about young people leaving the church. Um, most of the people I grew up with in the church are not Christian anymore. And I would like to write something about that just because I've got some pretty gnarly experiences with unhealthy churches myself. And so I think I can relate to those stories a little Mm -hmm. bit more and might be able to contribute something there. So that might be the next um, book project. Um, There's other ideas. I I vote for that. (laughs) I like that. (laughs) We'll see. Yes. Well, uh, again, uh, we are going to have, I will let the audience know when we're going to have that book signing. And uh, and again, if you just like wine and cheese and, and like to think uh, think about life, it'll be a great opportunity. So I just want to thank you for taking time to be here with me today. I appreciate it, Jake. Yeah, thanks for having me on. This you bet. Uh, I leave you today saying, as I always do, to think about it and talk about it. We'll see you next week.